Well, if you will take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be reading the entire chapter together this morning, but we are going to be focusing specifically on verses 5 through 9. So if you have found your place, um, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 692. If you found your place, if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 1. We'll read the entire chapter this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, this is what the author, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the church. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Father, I ask that you might grant that your word go out in power. Open up our eyes to see the glories of Jesus. Help us to understand your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When, when Julia Rowland and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky in 2009 so that I could attend seminary, uh, we decided for numerous reasons to move to our new city before I had a job. Uh, I'm not recommending that for anybody. So when we got to Louisville, my full-time job was looking for a full-time job. And the first places I looked, uh, for I think obvious reasons, if you know me, uh, were the various Christian bookstores around town. So there I was with my resume, English degree with an emphasis on literature and a minor in creative writing from Oklahoma Baptist University. 
former music and youth minister at a Baptist church, pursuing a master's degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I thought that I was, I thought I was, like, this is the guy that needs to be hired. But in hindsight, I probably looked like all the other seminary students, and I probably was looking for a job at the same places that all the other seminary students were looking as well. So I was going from place to place, hunting for a job, and then I came to Tonini Church Supplies. And as soon as I walked through the door, I knew something is different. There were a suspicious amount of paintings of Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was a whole wall of crucifixes, not crosses, crucifixes with Jesus still attached to the cross. There were books I'd never seen from authors that I'd never heard from. And angels. Angels everywhere. There were paintings of angels. There were figurines of angels. Now, since I was already there, I decided that I would fill out an application, and I left a resume, but needless to say, I never received a callback for an interview at the Catholic bookstore in town. The, the Roman Catholic Church, they put a heavy emphasis on angels along with other things. In fact, the Feast of Archangels, which is supposed to honor the angels Michael, Gabriel, and the extra-biblical Raphael, is on Wednesday. Set your calendars. The Feast of Guardian Angels is on Saturday. The Catholic Church even have an angel of God prayer that teaches young children to pray to their guardian angel. But of course, it's not just the Roman Catholics who think about angels a lot. Go to any Christian bookstore and you'll probably find them selling paintings of angels jewelry with angels on them, figurines of angels. Before we merged, there were angel figurines all over this building. And if you explore, you'll probably still be able to find some of them around here. I might suggest looking in Philip's office first. The world is also fascinated by angels. You can probably think of TV shows and movies where angels play a significant role. Supernatural, The Good Place, Touched by an Angel, I'm dating myself here, Highway to Heaven. It's a wonderful life. Simply Google TV shows about angels and look at the list. Even non-Christians are interested in angels, maybe without even knowing it. I liked Jay's description of angels that he gave when he was looking at Ephesians chapter 6 as interdimensional beings. Angels are real. They are intelligent. They are moral beings. And they are good angels. The Apostle Paul calls them elect angels. And they are bad angels called demons. So when some celebrity claims to be in communication with some kind of interdimensional being, we ought to understand what they're actually talking to. Angels are real. They are active. We see them throughout the Bible, and the author of Hebrews assumes they're 
existence. And so we don't need to ignore angels, as the Bible surely doesn't, but neither should we overemphasize their importance. As fascinated as the world is with angels, while they're making their TV shows and movies, writing books, making figurines and jewelry, who are they not fascinated with? Who are even some professing Christians not very fascinated with? The Lord Jesus. Now, please don't hear me saying that the solution to this is to make TV shows and movies and figurines and paintings of Jesus, because I am 100% not saying that. Instead, we need to go back to the scriptures. And we need to have a biblically informed theology of angels. And when we're biblically minded, we will see and come to be ourselves, not constantly angel-focused, but focused instead on Jesus. People like the idea of angels because they're pictured as beautiful or or as powerful, or, or, or many times angels are just pictured like us, except they have wings. But remember, the entire book of Hebrews is intended to show us that Jesus is better. He's incomparable to anyone or anything else. Remember verse 14. He has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is better He is superior to angels, and it's not even in terms of degree, as if if the the angels are at the bottom and Jesus Jesus is at the top. Jesus is infinitely better than angels. Like the difference between a child's nightlight and a hundred trillion supernovas, there is simply no comparison. So we come back to our passage today in Hebrews. Last week, as we, as we opened the book, we saw the superiority of the revelation that, that God has given to his people in Jesus. And we, we saw these, these eight descriptions of Jesus. He's the heir of all things. He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he has inherited a name that is far superior to the angels. And now verses 5 through 14 are going to follow the same pattern as verses 2 through 4. And and the author of Hebrews is going to take those eight descriptions that are found in verses 2 through 4, and he's going to apply them specifically to Christ's relationship to and superiority to the angels. And what he's going to do is he's going to take these eight descriptions that are in verses 2 through 4, and he's going to to combine them, and there's going to be four big descriptions of Jesus found in verses 5 through 14 to demonstrate this superiority. I had originally intended to cover the entirety of this chapter today, but instead of looking at all four descriptions this morning, we're just going to look at the first one. And it's going to take up all of our time. And Lord willing, we'll look at the other three next week. 
And so the first description of Jesus this morning is found in verses 5 through 9. Jesus is the promised Davidic Messiah. Now, before we jump into the passage, there are three observations I want you to make at the very outset. These are just kind of sidebar. They're there for free, all right? The first is that the author is strong, he strongly affirms the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. I want you to notice that, all right? Verses 5 through 14, 10 verses, seven Old Testament passages are quoted. And these quotes come from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. These are the, it's the threefold division of the Hebrew scriptures. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, or the writings. And so the author of Hebrews is going to take passages from all three of these divisions. And he's going to quote extensively, not just here, but in the entirety of the book, to prove his argument. He strongly affirms the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. There's no question where he finds the authority for his arguments. It's in the scriptures. The second observation I want you to make is that the author affirms the inspiration of the Old Testament. It's not just that this is, these are wise words from, from men who were wiser than me. These are the very words of God. Notice he's going to quote from Moses He's going to quote from David. He's going to quote from the author of 2 Samuel. But I want you to notice that before he, he quotes these scriptures, and if you're using a, a, a Bible um, version that, that really offsets those quotes, you're going to see that he introduces all of those quotes with either God says or he said, and the he is referring back to God. God is the one who is speaking. And so the author, the human author, wrote these words, but the author of Hebrews understands that, that what they're doing is they, they are holy men that are, are moved by the Holy Spirit. They are writing the very words of God. And so he is not just, not just quoting these authoritative words that, that are authoritative because he likes them or because of tradition, but he's quoting them because he strongly, strongly affirms these are inspired. These are the very words of God. And then the third thing I want you to notice is that the author acknowledges the progressive nature of Old Testament revelation. We talked about this last week. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in the days of fulfillment, the Messiah has come and God has spoken to us by his son. And we're going to see that there, there's this progressive nature of Old Testament revelation. We're going to see it in the way that the author uses the Old Testament. He, he recognizes that the Old Testament, it, it didn't reveal everything in a crystal clear way. The story was going somewhere. And I used the, the illustration of a mystery novel last week. That, that at the beginning of a mystery novel, you've got the, you've got the crime. You've got, you've got the mystery. You've got, you've got something that needs to be solved. And along the way, there are hints and there are clues as the detective is trying to figure it out and put the pieces together. And then at the end, you finally discover who done it. And that's the way that, that the Bible gives the story. We have a goal, and there are 
hints and there are clues and there are pieces that are put together, but it's not until Christ enters the stage in the New Testament that all of a sudden all the strands come together and we get the full story and we recognize what the Old Testament was ultimately talking about. And this is how the author of Hebrews understands this progressive nature of Scripture. The the story's going somewhere. It's anticipating something. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so he uses the clarity of God's revelation in Jesus to help fill out the meaning of the Old Testament. Not that it wasn't there, but that because Jesus has come, now we can use the New Testament revelation to help us to understand the fullness of the Old Testament revelation. And that's how he's going to interpret the scriptures. That was all introductory. Jesus is better than the angels. When we see him in his superior power and in his superior beauty and his superior glory, I pray that it will cause us to worship him and to love him and to pursue the knowledge of him and to tell others about him. If we see him for who he is, as the author of Hebrews is going to present Jesus to us, we cannot, we we. we absolutely cannot, must not keep it to ourselves. We must let other people know. And so the first description found here in verses 5 through 9, Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is the promised Davidic Messiah. Now that's, the big, that's the big heading. But let me give you just three sub-points to, to help us hang our thoughts on, three ideas for us as we walk through We're going to see the promises to David. We're going to see the role of angels. And then we're going to see the kingdom of Christ. So let's look at verses 4 through 5. Let's look at the promises to David. And let's begin in verse 4 to to introduce what he says here. Verse 4. Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The name Jesus inherits is more excellent than the angels, the the name that angels have. But we we have to answer the question, what name is he talking about? And last week I I suggested that the answer is found in verse 5. Jesus inherits the name Son. He inherits the name Son. But what does that mean? Isn't he eternally the Son? Orthodox Christian theology, derived from the text of Scripture, tells us that that he didn't become the divine Son, but that he has been eternally the Son of God equal with the Father and the Spirit, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And so the author here is not referring to Jesus' divinity. Not that he won't mention it because we're going to see that fully next week. But instead he's referring to Jesus' incarnation. He's referring to Jesus' incarnation. And what we have to understand about the book of Hebrews is that the book of Hebrews demands 
that we have a proper understanding of Christology or a proper understanding of the theology of Christ. Because if we don't have a proper understanding of the theology of who the Christ is, there are many places in the book that simply won't make any sense. Looking back through church history, the Creed of Chalcedon, which was written in 451 AD, reads as follows. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning had declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Y'all got that right? I'm just going to close this and we'll be done. Let me explain that. In other words, the incarnation which means in flesh. When the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she conceived a baby in her womb, the eternal Son of God, who is truly and fully God, as much God as the Father, he took upon himself human flesh and he has a human mind. And he has a human spirit. And he has a human will. And he became truly and fully a man. Just like any one of you. Yet without sin. But he has two natures. He is one person. But he has a God nature. And he has a human nature. And these two natures are distinct. And so we can speak of his divine nature as completely self-existent. Well, at the same time, we can speak of his human nature as becoming hungry and thirsty and getting tired. In his divine nature, he is eternal. He is immortal. But in his human nature and in his human flesh, he can suffer and bleed and die. And so one person, two natures, they are distinct, and so we can speak of one or the other nature, but we can't separate his natures because that's who he is. In his one person, he is the God-man. And so when we talk about Jesus, when we talk about the Messiah, we are speaking of 
the God-man. In his divine nature, he is eternally the son. But as a man, he is God's son through his work as the Messiah, the promised Davidic king. And so he inherits the name son. And there is mystery here. And and theologians, they they dive deeply into these things. And, And we... We see this in the scriptures, and so we, by faith, we are trusting in this God-man, the eternal Son of God, who is also the incarnated Son of David. And it is as the Messiah that verses 4 through 9 are concerned. The author here is not, is not, is not talking about his divine nature yet. He'll get to it. But right now he's talking about his his role and his identity as the son of David, as the Messiah. As verse 2 tells us, he is the heir of all things. And so verses 5 through 9 are going to unpack what that means, that he's the heir of all things. He is the, the Davidic Messiah, the promised one. And so he's going to quote from scripture here. He's going to quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And he's going to quote from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And Psalm chapter 2, it's a psalm concerning the son promised to David. So instead of going to Psalm 2 first, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to, we're going to look at several of these passages. I want you to put your eyes on them. Because these are important passages for you to to remember. You need to know where these passages are. And I think one of the best ways for you to remember is if you actually flip to it and see it with your own eyes. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is living in Jerusalem and he has rest from his enemies and and. In his heart, he thinks to himself, I'm living in a a big, beautiful house. And God lives in a tent. Because that's where the people of God went to worship God. They went to the tabernacle. They went to a tent. And so David, he, he wants to build something more permanent. Not a tabernacle, but a temple. The word of God comes to the prophet Nathan, and God has a word for David. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is known as the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. It's a promise that God has made to King David, that God will provide peace to Israel through a son who will build a house, a temple, and who will sit on the throne forever. This is the promise that God made to David. And now we know as we read through the Old Testament that David's son, Solomon, is the initial fulfillment of this promise. God gave to David a son, Solomon, who sat on the throne of David and who built a temple in Jerusalem, this magnificent temple where God's very presence dwelt and where, where the people, not only of Israel, but of the nations, could come and they could, they could worship there. But even in this promise, as we read through the stories of Scripture, we know that someone greater is anticipated because Solomon dies. Before he dies, he sins, and he sins greatly. And Solomon's son sins and dies. And Rehoboam, his son, sins and dies. And down through the lineage of the kings, these kings are weak, frail, sinful mortals. So how is the, the promises that are given to, to David, how are they going to be realized? Who is this son? And so the Old Testament anticipates something greater. And that something greater arrives in the New Testament. And we can see this in Luke chapter 1. Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 31. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Zechariah picks up on this also. He's also anticipating the fulfillment. In Luke chapter 1 verse 68 he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Jesus is the promised son of 2 Samuel 7. He is the one who comes. He's the, the son of David. And he's chastised, not for his own disobedience, but for the sins of his people. 
And he builds a house not out of wood and stone, but out of those he redeems and to those to whom he, he gives his Holy Spirit. And he gives his people rest and security from their enemies. And he sits on his throne forever. When you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you read that, I want you to see Jesus. Jesus is the son to whom God promises David. And so he inherits the promises of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, which is a psalm that is reflecting upon this promise. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word Mashiach, it is Messiah. Why do the nations rage against God and his Messiah? Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is about Jesus. This is about the Son of David, who is also the Son of God. It is about the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord of all the earth. The author of Hebrews, he only quotes one or two verses, but he has in mind the whole thing. And so he sees here, as Jesus is being called the Son, he inherits the name as the Son, and he inherits all the promises of 2 Samuel 7. He inherits all the promises of Psalm chapter 2. And it is true wisdom to submit to him and him alone as Lord. Angels are often referred to in the Old Testament as sons of God. We can think of Genesis chapter 6 or Job 1 and 2, Psalm 29, 1, Psalm 89, 6, the sons of God referring to these celestial beings, these, if you will, interdimensional beings, these angels. But to what angel has God ever singled out and said, you are my son? The answer, of course, is none. In this regard alone, Jesus is superior to the angels. He is the Son of God. He is the one promised to David who would build a house, who would build a temple. And he is the one who sits on his throne forever. And he is the one to whom all of the nations would be wise to submit to. This is the superiority of Jesus as he inherits all the promises of David. 
juxtaposed with that is the role of the angels. We have Jesus here. He is called the Son in verses uh, in verse 5. But in verses 6 and 7, we have the role of the angels. What, what are the role of these interdimensional beings? When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, again, notice, he says it. Moses wrote it, but it's the word of God. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The first verse that the author of Hebrews quotes is, as I discovered in my research, one of the most controversial verses in the book of Hebrews. So, right there at the beginning. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. But if you look at it, in your Bible, you probably will not see the same, um, the same verse worded the same way as we have here because the author of Hebrews is using what's known as the Septuagint. He's using the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the Septuagint was written in between the Old and New Testament. And so as, as Hellenization was going on, as the Greek world was, was expanding, as the Greek language was becoming the, the common language, much like English is a common language today, there were leaders within Israel who said we need to translate the Hebrew scriptures into a language that everyone can read. And so the product was the Greek translation known as the Septuagint. And this is the translation that the writer of Hebrews is using most, of, most often. And so he's, he is, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Let all God's angels worship him. Let me read it from the English Standard Version, which is using the Hebrew scriptures says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. That's where it's translated as angels. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. This is the end of what's known as the Song of Moses. God told Moses to write this song down as a witness and a testimony about Israel in the latter days. And it includes God's purposes for Israel. God chose Israel. He put them in the promised land, but they rebel. It's all included in the song of Moses, the rebellion of Israel, the exile of Israel under hostile nations. But here at the end, there is the promise of salvation and restoration. And what the author of Hebrews understands is that all of these purposes for Israel are fulfilled in the Messiah. Where does salvation come from? Where does restoration come from? It doesn't come through Israel's righteousness. It doesn't come through their armies. It doesn't come through a human king. It comes through the Messiah. And so that's why the author of Hebrews is quoting it here. All of the purposes are fulfilled in the Messiah. But what does it say? At the end of the Song of Moses, it says, let all of the angels worship the Messiah. 
worship this one who's coming into the world. And, and this word firstborn, where it says he brings the firstborn into the world, he's, he's alluding to Psalm 89, verse 27, which reads, I will make him the son of David, the Messiah, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's, he's wrapping it all up. Where does God's promises find their end and their goal? It's found in the Messiah. It's found in the son of David, the king, the ultimate ruler over the world. And what are the angels supposed to do when he comes into the world? What are they supposed to do when he, he enters into his office as the king and through his death and resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the throne of God as he is installed as the Davidic king and Messiah to whom all the nations are supposed to submit? What are the angels supposed to do? Worship him. Bow down to him. Read cover to cover. Read the Old Testament and the New Testament. Start in Genesis and go to Revelation. This cannot be said of just anyone. This would be blatant idolatry if the angels bowed down to anyone other than the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God. He is the one in whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment and their purpose and their goal. He's the one who will bring in all of the covenant blessings. And when he comes into the world as the Messiah, God's word says all the angels worship him. Worship him. Of the angels, he also says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4, the angels, they are the creations of God. They are ministers. And it says he, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And, and this could be taken in a variety of different ways. It, it could be referring to their task as messengers and agents of judgment, which we see throughout the Bible, they, they come as messengers, a, a word from God. They also come as agents of God's judgment and wrath. It could be referring to their spiritual aspect. They are spiritual beings. It could even be referencing the fact that angels might control certain elements. And so there are angels that are behind the winds. There are angels behind the, the fires. We can look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, where there are the angels who hold back the four winds. There are angels in the Euphrates River, according to Revelation chapter 9, verse 14. We, we don't know exactly what this means, that he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But at any rate, and despite any of these interpretations, it highlights the role of angels as those who minister. They're servants. They Angels serve at God's pleasure. Not to denigrate the role of angels, but they're butlers. They're soldiers. They serve. Jesus is the king. Jesus rules. These verses, they remind us to put the emphasis in the right place. Why be fascinated by angels when there's the sun? 
If the angels are commanded to worship and serve him, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we? Think of all the the paintings you've seen of angels or figurines, the, the Christmas tree decorations that have angels. Think of how they're presented in, in, in beauty, in splendor, in majesty. The sun is infinitely more beautiful than the angels. They are servants. He's the king. Don't, don't overemphasize the importance of angels. Don't be fascinated by them. Don't be infatuated with them. Look and behold the Son of God. And verses 8 through 9 show us the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ. And he's quoting from Psalm 45. And I want us to look at Psalm 45 together. Let's look at Psalm 45 together. Psalm 45. We have a superscript. If, you're, if you have a, a version of the Bible that has some words in block letters at the top of this, there's the, the title that your Bible translators gave to it. In the ESV, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever. That's not part of the scriptures. That's just a man invention. But in those block letters, we have something that's called a superscript, and it actually is in the Hebrew Old Testament. It actually is part of the inspired text. And it tells us something about this. It tells us that this is a love song. Let's read this love song. Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your father shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. 
it's tempting to just go to the psalm and just walk through this psalm. It's amazing. This psalm was originally penned for the marriage of a Davidic king. It's a love song. It's a love song about the king. It's a love song that is about the princess, the bride, and their love. Maybe this was penned for Solomon. We don't know. What we do know is the, the height of the beauty of the king and, the, and, and his glory and his, his majesty, his power, his righteousness. But what's interesting is when we get to verse 6 in the psalm and verse 8 in Hebrews chapter 1 is the title that's given to the king. Your throne, O God. Don't think that the psalmist is suddenly changing his perspective and talking to God in heaven. He's talking to the king. He labels the king as God. And this might shock you. How, how could this be? This, this psalm, it was originally penned for the Davidic king. It's, it is shocking in its address to the king as God. However, this was a common designation for kings in the ancient Near East. Uh, you can think of how the Egyptians considered Pharaoh to be a god. This was how they viewed their kings in the Old Testament. Israel didn't consider their kings god in the sense that they were divinity, but they had no problem addressing them as god. There's even biblical precedents for calling Israel's leaders gods. Uh, Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. God himself says, you are gods. Jesus quotes this in John chapter 10, verse 34. But it's in the author's interpretation of this passage. Remember, he's, he's taking the fullness of the revelation of New Testament. And he's looking at the Old Testament and he's seeing with almost new eyes how it's unfolding. How, how the fullness of this meaning has, has, been, has been revealed through the coming of Jesus. This is called typology. Persons, places, events, things that, that are pointing forward to something even greater than themselves. And here, the, the Davidic king, in all of his splendor, as the psalmist has no problem saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The author of Hebrews, he understands this text in its fullness. And he sees how it has been ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and, and how this title escalates. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is the Davidic king, who is both truly a man, the son of David, but also, amazingly, he is truly God. This psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews, he looks at it and he says, this is about Christ and he says of the Son, God says by the inspiration of the Spirit in Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And we see the the, the persons of the Godhead here is the king is God and he also is related to God in heaven. But look at what this, these verses as quoted in Hebrews are pointing out to us. The king who reigns forever. Your throne, O God, is forever and 
forever. It has no end. Remember Gabriel's words to Mary. He will sit on the throne of his father David forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. It is forever and ever. We also see that he's a righteous and just king. He loves righteousness. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. He rules in a just way. He loves righteousness while he hates wickedness. We can understand this as the perfect obedience of Jesus. He is the son who always obeys his father. Then look at the end. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. His kingdom brings joy. It brings joy. It brings gladness. Uh, But look, it says it brings gladness to himself. God has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Jesus enjoys being king. This anticipates Hebrews 12, verse 2. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw the cross, but he looked through the cross to the joy on the other side. Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In the context of Psalm 45, he's glad in the blessings of his kingship. He enjoys being king. But I want you to notice that it's not just him who's glad. God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The king has joy beyond his companions, but his companions have joy. His companions are glad as well. In Psalm 45, we see the gladness of the psalmist. We see the gladness of those around the king. We see the gladness of of the bride and and those who are with the bride and, and even the sons that will come through this marriage union. There is gladness and joy and satisfaction all around. Who are these companions? God has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Who are his companions? Well, it's possible that they're angels. That God has granted gladness to Jesus that is above the angels. But I don't think that that's the best answer. Because they're called servants. They're called ministers, not companions. I think that what's going on in verse 9 anticipates chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Chapter 3, verse 14, it uses the same word 
the companions. Verse 14 of chapter 3 says, for since we have come to share in Christ, that word is companionship. Since we have come to have companionship in Christ, I, I think that the companions are us. The king rejoices. He's glad in the blessings of his kingship. He's, he's glad in the, in the joy of being king. And we have joy in him. We are the companions who come along with the king. And we rejoice in the king's beauty and his glorious kingdom. We rejoice in the joy that's found in Christ. None of this is said of the angels. None of this is said of the angels. But in fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 says that, that surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who is that? It's believers. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, we're told that the angels, they even eagerly long to look into these things, that they will never know or experience or enjoy God the way Christians will. If you're a believer, if you're trusting in Christ, you will know God and experience God and you will enjoy God more than the angels. The angels just long to look into these things. They, they long to understand the gospel because they, they don't know what this means. They, they, don't, they don't experience God in this way as their savior, as their king, as, as the one who, who they're in union with. You can have joy that exceeds the angels if you know Jesus as your Lord. This is astonishing. I don't know if your brains are just melted or if you're just stunned because we think so highly of angels in our culture. We walk into a Christian bookstore and there's just angels everywhere. We say, oh, we're, we're just surrounded by angels. And we don't really understand that the scriptures are, are, are shouting, they're screaming that Jesus is superior to these things. And you who are in Christ, you get to share in that joy. It's incomparable. It's absolutely incomparable. We're only, nine, we're only nine verses into Hebrews. Christian, do you see yet the glory of Christ? Do you see him? Do, do you have a, an elevated understanding of who he is? He is infinitely superior to the angels. He is the treasure of the universe. In him is true and forever joy. He is your redeemer. He is your savior. He is your friend. Behold your God. Behold your king. Don't let anything else infatuate you. Run after Jesus. Seek to know him, seek to love him more, seek to obey him and tell others 
How can we hide this? How can we keep this to ourselves? We've, we've got to go out and tell people there is joy found in Christ. He is superior to everything this world has to offer. And you here who still have not trusted in Christ, are you still not convinced? Are you still not convinced? Here is the Son of God slain for sinners. The Holy Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for sins. He died a death for sinners. This Jesus, this glorious one, this, this king in all of his beauty, beaten to a pulp, unrecognizable as a man, nailed to a piece of wood, blasphemed, spit upon, insulted, but all of that was incomparable to the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus for the sake of sinners. And he died. Praise God, he rose from the dead. He has ascended. He sits upon his throne and he will rule forever. And Psalm 2 tells you, be wise and kiss the son because blessed are all those who find refuge in him. Are you going to miss out on this joy? Are you going to miss out on this joy? Do you have no concern for your immortal soul? Are you so foolish? Do you love your sin so much? Forsake sin and trust in Jesus while there's still time. Not later, not tomorrow, not next week, not when I have my act together. Now, sinners come to Jesus. He is given for sinners, and that means you. The king in all his splendor stands willing and able to save if you would but come. Here he is, superior to the angels because he is the promised Davidic king. And his kingdom is one that will be forever and ever. It is a kingdom of righteousness and justice. It is a kingdom where there is infinite forever joy. Come to this king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for revealing him to us in all of his beauty, in all of his power, in all of his righteousness, in all of his glory. Forgive us for 
ever being infatuated by something less. God, help us to love Jesus more. Help us to to see him even more. And God, we pray for those here today who don't know Jesus. What more do they need? They need the new birth. They need your spirit to do a work of, of bringing dead hearts to life. And that's something that I simply can't do. Our hope is in you alone. Salvation belongs to the Lord. To you belongs the power. To you belongs all the glory. God, we pray that you would save those here who are lost. God, as we leave here, May our thoughts be turned heavenwards to Jesus. May our affections be towards him. And in our love for Jesus and in obedience to his word, may we take this gospel out to the world. And may your name be highly exalted. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.